So my name's Tripp. Uh, I have uh, three children, Elgin, Cora, and Haven, 11, 5, and almost 2. Or as he likes to say, toot. And I'm like, yeah, when you, in just three months, you'll become a toot. And uh, anyway, um, I'm married to Alicia. We met at 18, our first year in undergrad in North Carolina. I uh, totally weirded out when approaching her. Um, I got my roommate to talk to her because they were in a class together until everyone else left the cafeteria. I heard she said that she wanted a milkshake. So I went and made a milkshake, tapped him on the shoulder. He got up. She realized she was being set up. And then I blanked and was like, you have sexy eyebrows. <laughs> and it took a couple of months before she would go out with me. But I just say that for all of you that have ever creeped someone out when just innocently trying to bring a milkshake, hoping you could hang out that weekend. Uh, it can turn out positive. Um, uh, we met, we got married, uh, you know, at 20 because we believed the Bible and wanted to have sex. Um, <clears throat> luckily, we stayed together enough that we joked that, you know, after seven or eight years when you get married that young and you finally become an adult and your frontal cortex starts to work, uh, you have that moment where you're like, oh, junk, I married them. And then uh, you find out they're thinking the same thing and then you fall in love again with the actual human that's in front of you, which we managed to do that before we had a child, which is positive. I feel like that totally saved three or four years of counseling. Um, <laughs> But we're both ordained Baptist ministers and have never actually worked at a Baptist church because we were too progressive to find one of the five that would let us work there. Uh, so we've always worked at other denomination churches. And uh, after we both finished our master's at Wake Forest University, uh, that's right, they make ministers that are demon deacons. That's our mascot. Go Deeks. Yeah, one of the most, one of like the highlights of my academic career. First class I TA'd was Chris Paul's Islam seminar. He was an undergrad and I was an, a master's student, so I uh, really take credit for his crossover. Um, we, we never played one-on-one. -on -one. I think it's because he was intimidated. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, so uh, I'm, a, I'm a rather hardcore Lakers fan. So 10 years ago when we moved to Los Angeles, uh, well, we lived in Los Angeles 10 years, um, when I did my PhD, it was great. Because I would just mention how much I love the Lakers and Dodgers at church to get free tickets from congregants uh, so that my, I could indoctrinate my children. Like, we don't really want them to grow up thinking they have to agree with us about everything except purple and gold. Because it's the most beautiful color. And y'all don't have an NBA team, so y'all could really be free agents, you know? I think Memphis should move over here because I've visited both towns and this is significantly cooler. But I hope they don't take it personal. There's like two blocks of Memphis that's cool. Um, <laughs> so this is going to be on the internet. That's real bad. Yeah. But that was a joke. You know, I'll make a different joke when I visit you, Memphis. I love you for who you are and want you to become all you can be. And it's difficult when Arkansas is that close, right? Um, so... I did my PhD in philosophy of religion at Claremont, which basically means that you study all the religious traditions, science, philosophy, ethics, uh, and things like that so that you can ruin parties, right? Everyone's having fun, and they're, they're just like, man, I'm having a great time. And then you say, <laughs> maybe. But also, 
Do you, have you thought recently about why we're born to suffer and die? Have you thought about, no trip, we're having a party. Yeah, but you know, parties are group distractions from their impending death and the sun swallowing the planet. <laughs> and I just, sometimes I really feel like we should just be honest. And I'm like, trip, go home. <laughs> so uh, this sermon today is not about the impending swallowing of the planet. Um, but we want to talk about that after. It's totally, totally down to do that. Um, actually, it's about a problem that's much more difficult. Much more difficult. Uh, it's about having difficult conversations. So um, I'm not going to ask you to close your eyes and bow your head before raising your hand because that creeps people out. It's like you can get triggered from the wrong upbringing. But um, how many of you were over the holidays hanging out with certain family members? We don't have to point if they're here where before you saw them, it's on your calendar and you're showing up, I don't know, at your in-law's house. They won't watch. Um, you're sitting there going, sweet baby Jesus, uh, master of the universe, or I don't know, whatever word I have to use right now for you to listen, may I not hate my existence in the next three hours. And also, why are my crazy family members the ones that don't have wine at meals? Or something like that. Who's had that experience over the holidays? Oh, yeah. And what, it, it, don't ask them. If you have your partner there, don't ask if it's their family. I found clarity around that issue to be something you settle, like, in March, not during the holidays. That's why I didn't tell Alicia I was going to say that. She's like, what are you talking about? Hard conversations, you know, like with your kids. Um, so, uh, and, and the coolest thing about the scriptures to me, is no matter what ideas you bring to it, they contain a wisdom, not just in the text, but in the thousands of years people have been reading them, trying to go, what in the world does it mean to be human and not suck before I die? That's the Hebrew translated, you know, slightly, not literally, you know, but like, uh, that's how a philosopher puts it. Um, and, and the most painfully awkward, difficult conversation I could find in wanting to wrestle with a text going, what wisdom do we gain when going into those crazy, uncomfortable, awkward conversations that we get stuck having is the one when Jacob and Esau get back together. Now, I know you all know your Bible, but I'm going to pretend that one of you don't and give you the backstory so you know why this is interesting. Uh, In 10 years in California, the church I worked at, I would, it took like a year before someone told me, you do realize everyone else here is not a sword drill champ trip. Like you go, well, you know, as you know, and I say some offhand thing, and then half the UCC congregation's like, was that guy in the Bible he's talking about? Um, Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a sword drill champ, but I'm overcoming. It's a recreational sport for real Christians where you use the Bible as a metaphorical weapon, uh, and then you compete and shame your peers at a young age into memorizing large volumes of it so that on the right occasion that your friends or family members need shamed on behalf of God, you have a large collection of Bible passages available. So the better you are at the sword drill, the faster you can find it quote it and drop it. And then when they're uncomfortable, they're like, why are you condemning me? I thought God was love. And you're like, kind of. Um, (laughs) You say really devout things like, don't blame me. It's just the Bible, you know? It's not personal. It's just the word. 
I know, sometimes it convicts me too. <laughs> That's sad, I heard that at Christmas. Um, yeah, well, all right, so in, in the title of the sermon, because I wanted to come up with one that you wouldn't forget, so that later you'd be like, that trip guy, wasn't he the one that talked about? Uh, so I'm telling you why it's called something weird. It's called How to Die of Thirst in a Monsoon. Now, having recently moved back to the East Coast and rediscovered rain um, and its frequency, like it doesn't just ruin one day a year, it ruins lots of them. And if your children are used to going outside, they make sure they ruin the rest of the day because it's like raining or even snow. And they're looking at you like, why isn't it 70 and sunny? And you're like, we don't live in Los Angeles. But if you do think of a monsoon, and there's tons of it coming down, there's only one way you can die of thirst in a monsoon. You forget you have a neck. Just think, man. No die of thirst. But a lot of us kind of lizard existence. Has that preacher ever stuck their tongue out at you in the middle of church? See, you won't forget that part. But at the end of the service, if I remember, I might get you to stick your tongue out at the person next to you. A lot of us run around like lizards. And there's this beautiful gift God is giving us. We live in a world packed full of a divine blessing and we work against it. We're shaking our fist at God, going, where are you? What's up? Where's the blessing at? And God's like, I invented necks. And you're like, And when you go around in a world where God's love and blessing is there, so often we end up agents of our own sabotage. Often unwittingly, we refuse to participate in the great divine blessing that God is given. And when you don't receive what is always already yours, and then you show up in a difficult conversation, even if it's the person you love most dearly, you're sticking your tongue out at them, looking for something they can't give you. And then we start lizarding. As an aside... The worst part of us where we don't think through our decision-making is the same part of the brain we share with a lizard, which makes it kind of double nerdy cool as an example. But uh, we aren't going to, like, parse out the brain today. I'm working on a chapter in a book on cognitive science, and that's why I thought of that. You're joining my stream of consciousness. It's okay. Um, So we work against our own blessing. We're thinking about this interaction of Jacob and Esau, and here is the history that I'm sure you all remember, but I'll remind you for the one person here who doesn't. Jacob and Esau are brothers. Jacob's one of the fancy-dancy patriarchs. You got Abraham, you got Isaac, then you got Jacob. Grandpa, daddy, son. Jacob, Esau, brothers. And you always ask yourself in a high-quality patriarchal family, who's the chosen one? Because you can only really have one kid you really bless and love, and the rest just stink. And it's obviously a dude. Um, And who's going to get this blessing? Well, it's supposed to go to Esau, but Jacob, who's like the smaller but wittier creative one, steals that junk. And then he runs away. In fact, his mom says, your brother's going to kill you. Run. And they haven't seen each other till this encounter much later in life. Now, if you think about what God wants when unreconciled family get together with baggage they don't know if they're going to talk about, 
I think we could wager a guess that God would actually like some reconciliation to take place. Because one of the greatest gifts you give are your family, and that even includes our chosen family. But one of the greatest gifts God's given us are the human beings around us who can speak truth to us when we don't want to hear it, speak love over us when we need it. And then you have two brothers, and they haven't talked to each other. And God knows the one that got the blessing, the chosen one, is the one that has some serious issues. And the day before, you have this encounter. God shows up and wrestles with Jacob. It's either God or an angel or however you want to translate it. But in the Bible, Jacob, stressing out, I'm going to cross a river tomorrow. I'm going to see my brother for the first time in a long time. That's going to be awkward. And he wrestles with an angel. And it says they're like wrestling all night. And Jacob says, I'm not letting go until you give me a blessing. And it doesn't happen. They keep wrestling. The sun's starting to come up. And then the angel does something really cool. It's called the angelic karate chop. And hits Jacob right on the hip. And after that, he permanently walked with a limp. This is how angels do karate chops. So like the rest of the time, he had a strut. And they were like, are you trying to rock it? He goes, no, I got karate chopped by an angel. And uh, so he got hit. And then the angel doesn't bless him, but changes his name. And says, Jacob, you'll be Israel who has wrestled with God, struggled with God. Now, the funny thing is, God's actually already changed Jacob's name to Israel once. But Jacob was actually more interested in keeping his old identity. A lot of us could actually end up receiving this great divine blessing that is for us, before us, discovered and rediscovered with and in other people. And we don't even take a new identity where we live in abundance, not scarcity. Jacob had his name changed literally by God. Remember the going up and down on the... On the uh, um, at Bethel, and, uh, and it didn't stick. So God does it again with a karate chop. So it's like the next day, he's like, did that really happen? Should I go by Israel? Nah, I'm dreaming it. Oh, my, it, my hip hurts. There was an angel karate chop thing. So the night before, God has set Jacob up and said, I've already given you a new name. I'm giving you a new name again. So please remember whose you are and whose your brother is when you walk into this situation. And then the text says this. Now Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids with their children in front, Leah with her children, and then Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on ahead of them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. So... So often, when we walk in to difficult conversations or walk into our home or our work, um, we put everyone in a story. And if you're giving off that energy and treating them that way, they learn to play the part you're giving them. Jacob sees Esau and 400 people coming, and he assumes they're coming for a war, a battle. Jacob sees his brother and his people coming, and he says, I need He's like, my brother's coming to get even. He's going to settle the score. There's nothing in the text that says that's what Esau was doing. But Jacob assumed previous acts determine who they are and what's possible in their relationship. And so he prepared that way. 
And then he said to himself, what is the absolute worst way to relate to your family in a time of crisis? Order them by how much you like it so they all know. (laughs) And so like the text says, Jacob's like, sees them coming. And he goes, obviously my brother's coming to kill me. That's why his family's with him. All right, so where are my maids? What are their names? I don't know. I forget them all the time. Can y'all get up here front with your kids? Yeah, and Leah, the older, not as pretty sister that I had to marry to get to the younger hot one. You come here with your kids. Uh, Rachel, Joseph, now y'all get in the back, okay? And then like, you know, one, one of the kids probably is like, Dad, why are we ordered this way? Is it because you love Joseph the most? And he goes, no, give me at least six more chapters. You know, then the coat of many colors. Anyway, so... <laughs> So he's like got them all like laid out. He's like, if it's a bloodbath, I want them to get to my favorite wife and child last. And uh, I've been at that family dinner when that happens. Um, So Jacob orders his wife and kids. And then it says he runs out and he's bowing seven times, which is a signal in the ancient Near East that you identify yourself as a servant of the one that's coming. So he's like, he doesn't see his brother. He sees an army, and he's trying to give himself over in patronage. Like, I know you're coming to kill me. I know I'm going to lose, so maybe we can just have peace in advance. Verse 5, right after this in chapter 33, it says, But Esau ran to meet him, embraced him, fell on his neck, kissed him, and wept. Jacob saw an army. Esau saw family. The same history between them, the same family, but Esau's sprint was for embrace and reconciliation, and Jacob's was to submit to avoid violence. In the Hebrew, the text where it says he kissed him has extra dots on top. Now, if you like reading a Jewish commentary on scripture, they never let a typo be a typo. It's an occasion to write a thousand pages to go, why are there extra dots on top? Which is totally cool because it's like we take the text seriously and to do that means you need at least 40 interpretations so no one takes their interpretation most seriously. Which means I read a bunch of them and found my favorite that fixed what I was trying to do in this sermon. So I guess it is an ideological choice. And just know that you can interpret it however you want. You could say extra dots are accidents. Or you could say, just like Jewish rabbis did in the Babylonian captivity, that the extra dots signaled the vulnerability of Esau as he embraced his brother. So he didn't just embrace him, but in his embrace, he turns his neck up and says, if you still want to steal everything from me, take my life. And I'm like, oh, junk that a preach. Thank you. So the extra dots have to do with this deep kiss, this deep embrace, this turning of the neck, saying, if you come to be against me, take my life. Because if I go forward, I go forward with you in it. We don't need to put everyone around us in our story. Sometimes the world we're walking through is so far from reality, we turn our partners, our children, our friends into our enemies for no reason. Or as my son Elgin told me when I was talking to him about this, 
He said, yeah, sometimes you turn Jar Jar Binks into Darth Vader. Just think about that. Yeah. It's a Jedi mind trick. Now, and I think of this because um, I've been in Raleigh for a year, and so I've detoxed from L.A. uh, traffic. And two weeks ago, we had actual traffic for like at least 30 minutes. Now, I, 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 I'm used to like hour and a half drives to school and back for all 28 miles. You would think my patience existed, but it has dissipated. And, um, you know, the, when I get back from traveling, my wife says, uh, Trip, I want 48 hours that I'm not the primary caregiver for our three children so I can become human again. And you obviously want the opportunity to demonstrate your servant's heart and give that to me. And I say, ah, duh. So, a couple weeks ago, I got back, and I uh, have all three children. We get in the car for Daddy Day, which is a mixture of large volumes of sugar, going outside where you, you know, get tired, and then if they still aren't tired, finding someone that will let us in the pool. That's what you do uh, in Los Angeles, but there's rain, and there's no pools outside because it's cold. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do. But I can't tell Alicia, right? So I get in the car. And we're going to go visit grandparents because they'll have sugar, and then you can kind of even out. One on three is a bad ratio, especially when they have that big age range. So we get in the car, and Haven, the one-year-old, looks at me and says, I hate you. He doesn't say it like that. He does the blood-curdling scream where he's like, I believe that you're separating me from my mother currently, and I hate the universe. So he went, and he, you know, his face shakes, and he's going, it's like a, going on over there, and then Cora, the five-year-old, is trying to help by shoving toys and things in his mouth while I'm trying to drive. My 11-year-old's in the back, and he's like, you're not very good at this, are you, Dad? And I'm like, I got it, all under control, Elgin. And then someone, I probably working for Satan, cut me off, and I got stuck in traffic. And I said things I'm not going to say right now. And Elgin said, Dad, you don't got to turn Jar Jar into Darth Vader. And I was like, I like that, Elgin. But I need you to be quiet until your brother stops yelling at me. And Cora, stop shoving things in his mouth. He doesn't want anything in his mouth. He's really upset. And then, I, you know, you have that moment where then they all get quiet because they're freaked out that you are letting them know the giant hurricane that's going on on your inside. And little sweet Cora goes, Daddy, it's okay. We don't think you're as good as Mom, but you're special in a different way. <laughs> now... <laughs> So, like that, like those little bitty things line up, and I start imagining the person cutting me off is doing it on purpose. That my children are conspiring with Satan or whatever to turn my life upside down. We can get stuck in situations and put people in it. Or I could show up at Christmas and still remember the first thing my father-in-law said to him, said to me, and he should be grateful I didn't choke him. There are lots of different ways we do this. So, what story is it that we're reading everyone else into? in our home, when we show up at conversations, when we come back from work, when we're at school? What is the conversation we're putting people in? Because scripture is sitting here going, you get a choice. You get to be Jacob, or you get to be Esau. You get to walk around lizarding, 
or you can realize you have a neck and that you're walking in great divine abundance and you can be vulnerable and open yourself up even to the one that stole the blessing from you. That's so beautiful. It's so powerful. And I'm so not good at it all the time. So just like this example, when, when I uh, was working in California before we moved, we had a very large, it was a very large UCC church, which meant you did lots of weddings for people that came once a year, um, three weddings on a weekend. And it was in a mansion that got turned into a church on a cliff, right? So if you can't find God when I was preaching then, it was really bad. <laughs> so sometimes you'd get this. They're like looking out the window. You start seeing ears, and you're like, is the mic on? And you're like, yeah, it is. They just checked out. And they're staring at waves. Well, you're sitting there, you do all these weddings. And so I had all the weddings I'm doing in the month, premarital meetings. And I had like four back-to-back where in that hour and a half, you realized they were making poor life decisions. <laughs> and you ask real basic questions, and they're like, I haven't thought about that before. I'm like, you should probably should. And then... Uh, <laughs> And, I, and then one of the couples got real mad at each other on a real basic question about how you're going to organize your finances. And I'm like, you probably should figure that out before you get married. Um, and they started getting real mad. And I just felt so bad and was distracted that uh, then the dad of the groom calls me. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. In like 20 minutes, you called your parent to call the minister? Whoo! That's why therapists have great job security. Um, so I'm like sitting there going, this is really sad. And I walk in the house and I'm like, that's the world I'm still living in, ignoring everyone around me, kind of frustrated, feeling sad. And Alicia's gotten to the point where she knows if I'm still in the funk, she goes, Trip, I'm going to need you to leave and come back when all of you's here. And, and, and she, she does that because I asked for it. I know it's real easy for me to get hung up on something that happens in one part of the day and then I carry it in and don't enjoy the fact that I have a few years, I get to be a parent to three beautiful, diverse images of God and I get to savor it and we get to experience being parents together. Like, that gets really, really ridiculous for me not to want to be present for it and it's so easy for me to rock it like Jacob and put everyone in the story and have everyone join my experience, my emotions, the way I see things. And that is a challenge. And so here's, what's, here's what happens in the story next. Um, uh, you want to go, why is it that Jacob feels this way? If you go back earlier in Genesis, a few crazy things happen. A servant of Jacob's mom heard Esau complaining and screaming in his tent after his blessing was stolen. The servant tells the mom. The mom says he's complaining and screaming in his tent. Obviously, he intends to kill his brother. So then the mom goes to Jacob and says, your brother intends to kill you, run. So like right there in Scripture, Jacob is basing his understanding of his brother on gossip and lies that exist in the family. And he's like, what's true about my brother is the gossip and lies that got passed down. I never talked to him about it. I have no idea if it's true. And it's not surprising that parents are rather partisan in taking their children's side. That's happened forever. And so she, the mom hears that he's grumbling in his tent. And she's like, oh, he's about to kill him. It's like a serious es escalation. And, you know, obviously... 
the older brother has this birthright stolen, and he could have gotten, he could have gone to his tent literally getting angry. If it had happened to me, I would have been angry. Right? Like, that's a reasonable thing to get upset about. And brothers get upset about crazy stuff. My brother and I are two years apart. I'm two years older than him. And uh, do y'all remember Nintendos? Where they had those big reset buttons? So I have a leg problem. Uh, when I'm losing, it kicks the reset button so that we never finish games when I'm behind. <laughs> and then my brother turns the controller into a nunchuck. And if for some reason, we do it every week when we were little. And that's like what normal brothers do. Now imagine like I stole his birthright. He's got a reason to be upset. And then anyway, so there's like gossip and slander and real hurt. And Esau comes and he says, uh, Jacob's sitting there trying to hand him goods, hand him things. And he goes, no, I want to meet my nephews and nieces. And, and Jacob's like, yeah, but I owe you. Will you take some of my goats? He goes, I don't want your stuff. God's given me plenty. What I really want is you. Where are you going, brother? Let us journey together. Um, and they're, they're headed off. And Jacob says, he, you can imagine him. His brother's like, doesn't want anything from him. And really just wants to go hang out. And he doesn't know if he can believe it because he's so stuck in his story. And so the scripture has him go back and forth. And Jacob's trying to give him something so they can call it even. And his brother won't take it. And then his brother's like, look, let's all go hang out in Huketh. Because that's like, I guess, where you family, do family vacations. And uh, it, so, they, it, so Esau says, you got a lot of women and children and stuff. I got a lot of extra people here. What if we help you and we travel together? And Jacob still doesn't believe his brother wants to reconcile and says, yeah, how about you, how about you, uh, I'll meet you there. He goes, no, I can leave some of my men to help, like maybe horses for the children. And Jacob goes, no, uh, I, I have cows and my cows might get tired. It'll slow you down. So trust me, we're going to meet you and suck it. And he's like, all right, I'll see you there. And then Jacob goes the opposite way. Jacob was sitting there trying to find some way of paying his brother off, to find favor. And, and Jacob just begs him to take something. And Esau's like, you missed the point. It's family. The older brother, Esau, was betrayed, had things stolen from him, had anger and rage, and yet when we pick up his story here, it's followed by growth. He has grace in the encounter, blessing, and desires a relationship with his older brother, his younger brother. And the younger brother, who's blessed by God, has his name changed by God twice, has a Holy Ghost karate chop so he walks with a limp and can't forget it, still lives in fear, feels like a fraud, and reframes someone coming to him for blessing and reconciliation as being duplicitous in trying to get even. He refuses to move on. He refuses to receive the gift God has already given him, a world of abundance and love. Now, this story of two brothers figuring out how to have that difficult encounter, that difficult conversation, and move to reconciliation. One models how to do it, the other not. Um, but it's not the only time 
brothers get mad at each other in Scripture. And, and when you see that at the heart of this inability to move on is really connected to their inability to accept the fact that they're accepted and that their most true thing about them is that they are indeed God's beloved. And so Jacob needs something from his brother as instead of receiving the abundance that Sarah reminds me of the brothers in the prodigal son story. Because you have the younger brothers like, let me take my dad's stuff, I'm going to go off, squander it, hanging out with pigs. And then he's like, I'm going to go home, maybe I can work for my dad, that'd be excellent, don't have to eat pig food. And, uh, and he's practicing, you know, his apology. The dad sees him, runs out, is like, we got to have a party, puts a ring on his hand, a robe, shoes on his feet. And then you have the other brother who's been there the whole time saying, well, you want me to go to a party? I've been here, and I haven't even got a chicken to have a party with my friends. You could have given me a chicken, made a little baby goat. Come on, pops. And his dad's like, no, your brother who's lost is now found. Like, you, you've been here the whole time. Did you not know that everything I have is yours? You see, that, that story, you have brothers and their animosity is not allowing one to celebrate the, the other. And you have these tensions that exist in a family and they have their own stories taking place. One of like, I'm dissing my father, I'm leaving him behind, I'm coming back, maybe I can work for him. Oh, junk, I get a party and I'm re-embracing the family. And the other is sitting there the whole time festering, going, what if this is mine? And I wonder if I really do belong here. And they have these different narratives in their head that they're inserting parties that God is throwing. And, it's, and the father's sitting there going, it's always all been yours. The brother comes back, wants to fit his return in some story of like repentance and forgiveness. And the dad's like, I don't know if you changed your name, but I didn't change your name. Right? He's mumbling, trying to get out his apology, and the, and the dad's like putting the robe and ring and stuff on his fingers. See, the, it, the, in that story and in the story of Jacob and Esau, you see that relationships, difficult one and tension, is best handled when we focus on whose we are and what God has already said about us. And as Christians, there are very few things I think we say and no, we might not change our mind on. But one of them is that each of us is known completely and loved completely by God. And you're God's beloved. And the story of faith is one where you come to trust that God's word about you is true over and over again. And when you receive it, you get a new name. You get a new way to walk in the world. You get the possibility of showing up in relationships in difficult times, needing nothing but receiving blessing. And that is good news. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us, even when we resist it. Thank you for coming to us, even if we forget it. Give us the courage to trust your good word about us. Give us the strength to speak that good word to each other and give us confidence in your uncontrollable, ever-exceeding grace. May we find it in the people around us.
and in those most close to us, even that family member that's most difficult to love. Amen.